Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm Joe Haas of Sightline, a senior writer for Script, where I principally cover business development, including M&A and alliances such as partnerships, licensing agreements, and tech transfer deals. Today, with a pair of very knowledgeable guests, I'm going to lead a discussion on where M&A activity stands in the biopharmaceutical sector today. Let me introduce our panelists. First, we have Mike King, Managing Director and Head of Healthcare Research with EF Hutton Group in New York. Mike, can you briefly tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure, Joe, and uh, thanks for having me on the on your inaugural podcast. Uh, so I've been a, a biotech industry analyst for uh, well over 25 years, uh, probably 27, 28, but sort of like my age, I, I stopped counting a while back and, um, you know, follow uh, all manner of companies from uh, the largest of the large caps uh, to tiny micro caps. I've kind of done that through the course of my career. Uh, followed lots of different subsectors within the group. Uh, focus heavily right now on oncology, but also do some other subsectors as well. That's great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, also joining us today is attorney Matt Gardella, a member of the U.S. law firm Mintz in Boston. Uh, Matt, can you tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure, it's Matt Gardella. Very glad to be here. Um, I've been practicing for about 30 years in the biotech area as an M&A lawyer, mostly involving public companies. Uh, our client base is a lot of clinical stage companies, so a lot of times we're on the sell side of that. So recent M&A deals I've worked on is uh, Vielo Bio, uh, F-Star Therapeutics, and uh, Sincona's purchase of applied genetics. But the, the topic is very relevant because our, our clients depend on um, this is an exit strategy. So the appetite of big pharma to do M&A deals is, is very important to our ecosystem. Okay, great. So uh, before we start talking about uh, deal making that's going on recently, there have certainly been some very noticeable deals the, the past couple of months. Um, I'd like to begin by taking a quick look at the uh, 2022 deal making snapshot and infographic we published in script on April 21st. Uh, I know each of you has had a chance to take a look at it. Uh, did any of the data or insight that we compiled stand out or surprise you? Mike, you want to go first? Uh, want to yeah, I mean, uh, you know, honestly, um, no. Um, I think there's lots of, um, there are a lot of reasons behind why the numbers are what the numbers are. I think we'll maybe explore those in, you know, greater detail as we get uh, deeper into the, uh, you know, deeper into the discussion. Um, I, I would say that on the biotech side, and I think this is, again, where something we're going to explore a little more deeply is that uh, you know there there are not a lot of targets uh, out there that kind of fit that criteria that threshold uh, where you drew that that line at, at ten billion uh, mm -hmm. doesn't mean doesn't mean that there um, you know obviously there has been deal flow uh, and there's and deal uh, agreements have taken um, various forms um, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves at mm -hmm. the moment. Yeah, so from, from my perspective, the, the overall deal volume, dollar volume, made sense to me. I mean, 2022 was not a super exciting year for biopharma M&A. Uh, as, as a backdrop, right, we, we had that sensational year in 2019 before the pandemic where we had this record year of you know, $328 billion. Mm -hmm. And then in the wake of that, right, we sort of were more down in the doldrums in that sort of $150 billion uh, a year dollar volume. 
threshold. And kind of, you know, 2022 was just an incremental decline from that. And, and, and you're quite right in your piece, Joe, that it was really propped up by the Amgen uh, Horizon deal right, right at the end there, you know, yeah. contributing $27.8 billion to it. So I wasn't surprised with the overall uh, dollar volume with it. I was a little intrigued, actually, we can come back to it later. You were making a distinction between deals with uh, contingent value rights or CBRs um, versus, you know, the upfront payments. And I, I think there was a suggestion maybe that you weeded those out, you, you would have less of a fall off from, from 21 to 22. And I'd like to circle back with that at some point, because it seems to imply that there was more that CVR use in 2021 uh, than 22. And so it's, it's an interesting topic. Well, uh, um, in case we don't come back to it later, w w what do you take from that? Well, what I take from it, um, particularly with the client base that I'm used to dealing with, is the CVR mechanism, the contingent value rights, is, is a really mm -hmm. helpful way to bridge buyers and sellers. And we see it a lot with earlier stage assets, right? I mean, the, the, the deals that have been feasted on uh, this year in, in particular, um, the deals that have been announced, they're all late stage assets. It's not shocking. They're, they're phase two, phase three are commercial assets. All the deals that have been announced year to date in 2023 have been that way. And that, that goes to the, the need for, for, for big pharma, uh, you know, to fill the pipeline with the with the patent cliff coming in 2023. Um, yeah. So the, the use of CVRs, I associate, Joe, with, with going a little bit more downstream, going a little earlier stage targets. And so I would expect to see more use of CVRs um, when big pharma starts to go hunting a little earlier. Uh, but right now they seem to be feasting on late stage assets. For the reasons I just said. Okay. If I just could add, yes. I, you know, I, as an investor, someone who um, you know advises investors, I think the most of the time that that the CBR mechanism is uh, you know, it, um, is not preferred. Uh, I can name you two fairly visible uh, uh, transactions that involved CBRs: Amgen Onyx for the uh, myeloma drug um, Carfilzomib. Um, and uh, most recently, Bristol Myers and, and Celgene, uh, where one of their CAR T programs uh, didn't get approved, and there was a you know, lawsuit, and you know the Carfilzomib uh, NDA got dragged out, and I know that the Onyx holders weren't very pleased about it. So um, I, I'm not sure um, how um, amenable uh, both sellers as well as the investors in those companies would be to um, CBRs. Okay. Before we move on to this year's deal making, just uh, one last thing on 2022. So the thing that struck me when I was putting together the infographic was how dramatically the Amgen Horizon deal changed the full year numbers in terms of M&A total value and M&A average value. Uh, before Amgen Horizon in mid-December, in your view, was 2022 shaping up to be a historically bad year for biopharma M&A, or did you see it kind of more fitting into an ebb and flow that you would expect to see over a period of years? You want to take that matter, or should I take it? Um, I can go. I mean, I, it definitely skewed it, right? Because the next closest deal size in 22 was was Biohaven, you know, Pfizer's acquisition of Biohaven, which was yes. a double-digit billion-dollar deal, but it was 11.6 compared to the 27.8. Um, but but I don't know, Joe. I mean, look, 
the, the greatest skewing, right, was 2019 when you had 191 billion contributed by those two deals, right? The AbbVie, uh, Allergan, and, um, and, and the BMS Celgene. Uh, you know, 191 billion out of the 328 billion was those two deals. And so I think there's always some element of that. I mean, this year, the numbers are going to be skewed with Seijin, right? Which was the topic of your, your article, uh, the 44 billion. I mean, that, that's most of the 70 billion that we have year to date is that one deal. So I, I, I'm, you know, mega deals when they come are great, you know, um, they're, you know, but, you know, I wasn't that surprised at the, at the overall number. Yeah, and, and my general attitude towards M&A, uh, Joe, is uh, that, um, you know, the, it, I think your, your, the terminology you use, which is, you know, ebb and flow, is um, the best way to describe it. Because I know there's, in, in the investor world, there's usually a lot of hype about M&A. Oh, M&A is going to happen. M&A is going to light things on fire in the, in the sector. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I find that... Um, most investors wind up getting disappointed because they, they don't typically happen uh, either at valuations that people hope for or, or and or with the timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, uh, the ability for uh, even a large scale M&A deal like Horizon or something along those those lines to, to kind of ignite a fire uh, you know, throughout this the sector is. Is dubious at best. Uh, I think the market would have to be really frothy in order for there to uh, be a, a sort of a widespread investor sentiment that, oh, if uh, you know Horizon got bought, we've got to start looking for companies that look like Horizon or have drugs that are similar to what mm-hmm. Horizon's doing, et cetera. And and that sort of domino effect simply didn't happen, and doesn't and yeah, usually it does not. Yeah, a lot, a lot of times it doesn't, it's definitely not going to happen when it's late stage assets. If you want a tide to raise all boats in the sector, the beloved sector, you know, is is, is not the late stage companies. It, it's full of uh, oh. early stage to mid stage companies. They're the ones who need the loving. They're the ones who need yeah. uh, the validation from big pharma. If you had deals going down into that zip code, that would have a salutary effect on the whole sector. I mean, these deals to me are, are, are wonderful, but uh, in terms of bellwethers for the s- sector um, and the future, mm. I don't take that much to them. This to me seems like clear um, replenishment of, of the pipeline in preparation for the so-called patent cliff when Elquist and other big name drugs, Umera, come off market in, in 20, 2030. So um, it's pretty clear what they're doing, right? I mean, yes, as a writer, I've sometimes wondered what exactly, if anything, is the importance of mega deals in any sector? You know, I'm in the journalism business and we look for great headlines and a $60 billion price tag is a great headline, particularly if it's real dollars, not earnouts and things like that, that, you know. So anyway, uh, I appreciate that conversation. Hopefully you'll both point some readers toward our uh, infographic, but I want to move on because 2023 through the first four months has been an interesting M&A year already. Of course, on March 13th, Pfizer uh, purchased the antibody drug conjugate uh, firm uh, CGen, and at $43 billion, that was the largest M&A in biopharma that we saw since a pair in 2019, the aforementioned Bristol Celgene and AbbVie Allergan deals. Uh, so to start, how do you, each of you assess that deal? Is it good value for Pfizer? Is it fair value and a smart move for CGen and its shareholders? 
Well, I think, um, I mean, look, Pfizer's got gobs of cash laying around. Um, I think they can pretty much make <clears throat> anything work, although they still have to be held accountable to investors. Um, you know, they they uh, did go out of their way on the conference call. You know, Albert Borla made sure he was on that call. Uh, didn't turn it over to uh, any other members of the C-suite to uh, handle for him. But, um, you know, they they uh, spoke about uh, not only um, earnings accretion, but also IP protection and, and you know, patent uh, greening. Uh, the, you know, and, and specifically stated that the Inflation Reduction Act was a key determinant or a key uh, valuation factor in mm-hmm. their thought process. And I think that that's something that, you know, will play into other M&A uh, deals. They may not necessarily lead to $10 billion plus, but, uh, you know, the fact that you now have these disparities between, you know, biologics and small molecules, I think is going to create a bit of a, a shift towards uh, or a bias towards acquisition of antibodies, which typically have uh, significantly longer uh, patent lives. And I think from the standpoint of CGen, I think that was sort of a fait accompli, uh, even though, you know, uh, Merck obviously walked away from the table. I think without the original founding CEO, Clay Segal, in there, um, you know, it was really more of a of a stewardship uh, rather than a, a real CEO with a with a growth um, mandate at the helm. Yeah. So for, with with Seagens, they have you know four FDA approved oncology products. So going to what we were discussing earlier, you know, Pfizer needs to uh, fill the pipeline and replace the revenue that they're going to lose with Eloquence or Ibrance coming off patent between now and 2030. So it's a smart move in, in that regard. And, and, I, and it's not just the standalone value of those drugs in the hands of Seagen. Pfizer, I think, will tell you that they believe that those products will have revenues by 2030 of, of, of $10 billion, which is about $2 billion more than analysts had projected in, in the hands of Seagen. And the reason why uh, Pfizer thinks that is because they, they see an expansion potential, an opportunity here with their own global uh, oncology franchise and, and integration of sales. That they're going to get synergies out of it. So it's not just it's a great drug and, and it's a, a approved drug and it's a revenue source. But when you combine it with our infrastructure and our know-how, you know we're going to get you know two plus two equals five out of it. So right. I think it sounds like a shrewd move on, on their part. Yeah, and just to pick up where Matt left off, I, I would also say you know again in um, the the um, messaging in the conference call was also they've got uh, you know a rinse and repeat kind of uh, technology platform where you can couple these antibodies to mertansine and all these other, you know, novel um, toxins and just churn these uh, out on a continuous basis. So uh, Pfizer not only gets immediate revenue from the approved products, but also has visibility uh, to future products. My sense uh, was that a few years back, the ADCs were maybe actually considered a bit of a disappointing asset class, that some of the enthusiasm had been tampered down. And then there were rumors last year about Merck buying CGen for big dollars. And then the Pfizer CGen deal finally happens. Do you either of you have any sense that the ADC is a uh, a, a drug class or an MOA that is of uh, now increasing um, importance 
I mean, from from this standpoint, absolutely. And uh, but they're not all created equal either. Right. Um, so I think that that's what Pfizer saw in CGen is that there's this scarcity value. Uh, you know, these are not all uh, created equal. You've got CGen valued. I mean, obviously, they've got a lot more products, too, than Immunogen. But, you know, Immunogen trading down, you know, the billion dollar range market cap wise, CGen 43 billion. Uh, so it just tells you that these are not all created equal. However, uh, a lot of imitators have now come along and you're seeing a lot of uh, venture capital going into ADCs and small molecules and bicycles and, and lots of other modalities that look very much like uh, what cgen uh, has been doing. One thing occurs to me, Mike, from what you said about what Pfizer emphasized on their conference call after that deal was, I wonder if the pandemic had a uh, impact here in that following the pandemic, mRNA at Moderna and BioNTech was talked up as this very versatile um, modality that you could that could be applied quickly in a lot of different areas. And, you know, ADCs so far mainly focused on cancer, but what you said about how it's it's almost kind of a plug and play for Pfizer in terms of now developing more ADCs. So do you think the versatility of mRNA uh, a few years back uh, affected the way people look at valuations now? Well, I, I know this- convoluted. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't necessarily think I would uh, link one to the other, okay. but I do think that uh, clearly, uh, you know, not only Moderna, but BioNTech, uh, you know, both obviously had not, you know, had not the pandemic occurred, uh, these guys would still be kind of slugging along, uh, sort of like Al Nylum did with SIRNA for 10 years mm-hmm. yes. before it finally worked. Um, but, you know, I think it, amplified and accelerated uh, the utility of mRNA approaches. And now you've got, um, you know, Moderna and um, Merck in a, in, a, in a great romance over their um, cancer yeah. vaccine approach that we just saw at AACR uh, a couple weeks ago. So uh, whether that leads, you know, Merck to buy Moderna, I, I have no idea, um, but it's certainly a, val- strong, a validation of the technology approach. Matt, did you but, have any thoughts before we move no, on? But I was just going to say, I mean, I kind of see your analogy. I mean, the, having a platform is a great engine of, of value for, for, for a company, for an acquirer. So messenger RNA is, is a platform and, and had that panache to it. I, I think, you know, the ABC, you know, assets that Seijin C- has is, is similar in that regard. I think there's companies that have protein degrader sort of technologies that could be used across. So it's, look, it's the holy grail. You can get a platform and, and have multiple applications. It's wonderful, right? I mean, it's, um, platform companies and companies that are in hot, you know, indications areas, immunology or cardiometabolic. I mean, there's, there's the flavor of the month in terms of what you want to focus on in terms of disease. And, but if you can get a platform and go multiple uh, shots on goal, that's great, right? I mean, it, it works out that way. I don't know if it's going to with messenger RNA, but we'll see, um, for example. But um, and, and you mentioned protein degraders. I can't think of the companies, but I seem to recall that within recent weeks, there were two fairly significant partnerships around protein degradations announced within like a day of one another. So it is yeah, always partly looking for that hot mood. Yeah, there were a couple of private companies uh, that uh, signed agreements. I think Roche did one, I, but don't quote me on that. I, I'm, right. I have to go back and check. So do I. 
Um, so staying with the Pfizer CGen uh, topic, do either of you have any theories as to why Pfizer was able to get this done with uh, with CGen when Merck, which is a longtime R&D partner of CGen and was rumored last year and into this year to be an acquirer of CGen, did not or could not? And I guess that's the question right there. Did Merck decide not to do this or could they not do this? I don't have insight on that one, Joe. Yeah. Okay. I, I I would think it's a matter of of evaluation and maybe Pfizer's got uh, a bigger checkbook at this point in time yeah. and maybe a bit more need than Merck. But like Matt, I can't really I didn't have anything privy to those discussions. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, staying with Merck. Um, uh, about a month, April seventeenth, a month after Pfizer CGen, Merck uh, acquired Prometheus for nearly eleven billion dollars. Uh, so Merck made its move, and um, it, it was said that that deal was driven by a phase three ready inflammatory bowel disease candidate uh, known as PRA023. Some people are calling that a potential blockbuster. Uh, in our coverage at Script, we describe the deal as a needed move toward portfolio diversification for Merck. Um, so what do you think of those assessments? Do you agree with the blockbuster projections for 023, and do you like this deal for Merck? I mean, to me, that, that's a very hot area, obviously, uh, autoimmune Crohn's disease. And so uh, it's, it's an exciting asset for sure, Prometheus. And so I, I think it is a, a great move for them. Um, but I don't have anything other than that, you know, sort of reaction. Yeah. And I would say I don't I didn't you know, I didn't follow either Prometheus. I don't follow Merck. I know that okay. there were some um, uh, opinions on on the street that it, you know it was an expensive purchase. I mean, it was almost 100% premium, if I remember uh, correctly. Uh, you know, like Matt, I agree. Um, you know, um, autoimmune inflammatory, as we saw with Horizon, is a very big space right now. Um, you know, there have been other transactions, not in the M&A space, but more uh, product uh, driven in the biotech world uh, uh, around novel constructs uh, for a variety of autoimmune conditions. We're seeing a company called um, um, Acelerin come yes. in public right now with, you know, a very big valuation with two, you know, uh, constructs for autoimmune disease. Uh, the, the, the chief executive officer there is uh, is Shelly uh, uh, Lin, who was at uh, um, AbbVie for many years and was uh, in charge of the Umira franchise so she's got a bit of a celebrity status but uh i think from a market opportunity standpoint uh, autoimmune is is enormous it just to go back in our on our coverage we had prometheus getting a 75 percent premium in that deal with 75 Mark. okay yeah um so lastly i just want to ask each of you with these two 10 billion dollar plus m a deals and then today we saw uh Estellas by Ivoric for not quite six billion. What do these M&A deals together possibly pretend for the rest of the year? Could we be moving into a new era of larger biopharma M&A? Uh, again, I go back to where we where I started off, which is that I, I think it has, you know, sort of its own cadence. I, I think there's been, and I also think there's been a, a there's been a, uh, a a a shift in landscape, whereas in the past. I think uh, M&A was seen as, if not the number one exit strategy, 
at least the preferred exit strategy. I think over the last several years with capital being uh, relatively, now obviously we're in a, a much different environment right now, but I don't think that's mm -hmm. going to last forever. Right? Structurally, the landscape has changed dramatically. There have been a couple of things that have happened. Number one, access to capital has been facilitated in, in a way that has never been seen on, on, on the planet, right? And so what you've had are companies that want to take their own product portfolios all the way you know, to the marketplace. You know, they might license a territory here or a product there, but there, there's sufficient capital available in, in a variety of different instruments uh, that uh, companies can use to retain the rights to their portfolio and build value for their shareholders without having to go to, you know, the Merck's, the Pfizer's, the J&J's of the world to, to sell. The other point I would make is that M&A, now you've got smaller companies and smaller relative to, you know, uh, the Roches and the Merck's of the world, but still mm -hmm. of considerable valuation. These companies are, you know, $10 billion in market cap up to, you know, $100 billion in market cap. And those guys are doing deals, but they're doing smaller deals. They're doing bolt-on deals. And then if you listen to the conference calls for the pharma companies, you know, uh, inevitably the, the question about capital allocation comes up. Most CEOs will say we're not really interested in, in mega deals. We're more interested in, in bolt-on and tucking, either bolt-on or tucking. Those are the two buzzwords yeah. that people prefer. Yeah, our, so, our coverage, in, uh, just to, uh, just give me a second, Matt. A lot of our coverage of the M&A uh, activity in the recent years is the really strong um, trend toward the bolt-ons. Matt, what did you want to say? No, I was just going to say, I mean, it really depends how you use the word bolt-on. I mean, like, I don't think double-digit billion-dollar deals is, is, is the thing to focus on. I mean, I think this year, we're probably, if things keep going, if you just annualize the $70 billion deals that have been done in the first four months, we could be at $300 billion you know, year if, if it keeps up this way, right? You know, so that's yes. not the record pace of 2019, but it's pretty darn close. And it's a big improvement from, from last year, which was like 127 billion. So if that's made up of $1 billion deals and $2 billion and $5 billion, that's fine with me. Um, so I don't I don't need to see a, a $25 billion deal. But like Estellas is a great example, right? I mean, $5.9 billion deal announced last night. And again, the, the reason they said right in the press release, it's to compensate for sales declines in the expandy uh, due to anticipated patent expiration later in the decade. I mean, it's one of the rationales for this, in addition to having immediate effect in fiscal year 2025. So it's a late stage asset. They're going to see it in the revenue model within by fiscal year 2025. And then they're going to it's going to help them with a patent. Uh, so that rationale is in spades for the big pharma. So that's going to keep driving this trend until they have no more late stage assets to go after. And then they're going to have to go after younger stuff, younger companies, which I think is going to be great. They do that. I think that's going to have a very salutary effect for the whole industry. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I think the, probably the term bolt-on is relative because I doubt a $5.9 billion deal is seen by Estellas as a bolt-on. <laughs> a Pfizer and AstraZeneca might probably does. So, But I think the gloves are off. I mean, I think last in February, right, this February, Wall Street Journal reported that AbbVie sort of removed its self-imposed 
cap, deal size cap of, of $2 billion. I mean, they're still suffering from the hangover of buying allergen back in 2019 in terms of debt levels. And they sort of have been telling people publicly that we're not going to buy anything uh, with, with a, a price point of more than $2 billion. And now they said, forget that, you know. Uh, and that's because, you know, like 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 all these other companies, in their case, Umera, they, they have patent cards coming. So it's not yeah. shocking to me that they're going to go out shopping. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's going to happen for the rest of this year. All right. Well, Matt, Mike, thank you both. I think this was interesting. I hope our audience found this interesting and informative. I uh, appreciate your time today. I, did either of you have any closing comments? No, I, I just, you know, I wanted to make sure I got the point across about how the, you know, the maturation of the biotech industry and kind of the SMID cap biotechs has kind of changed the landscape uh, dramatically for, uh, for M&A. Okay. And I was just going to add, I was listening to some of the earnings calls last week. I mean, if you listen to you know, your article focuses on the big four bio, um, big, big pharma acquirers, but you know, if, if, if you go and listen to some of the earnings comments that were made by CEOs of Biogen and Novartis, you know, there's um, there's a lot of people who are saying they have dry powder and are looking for deals uh, mm-hmm. and, and are committed to business development. So I, I, I believe them. Um, and, um, you know, so there are other names out there than, than the big four that you were referring to in your article and including Stellis, for example. And the the only thing that I can see slowing things down, I have to say this is kind of the legal egghead on the call here is, you know, so far we haven't had problems with antitrust, you know, but but that administration down there, I say this respectfully, uh, you know, it has a different view. You know, they, they want more time to review filings. I think they feel the commissioners from the FTC and, and Chair uh, Lani Khan and Commissioner uh, Slaughter feel that some of those deals back in 19 were done without sufficiently comprehensive review. And it's publicly said that that's not me making that up and, and they want more time and they've asked you know, Congress for more time um, to amend the hard Scott review thing. So we haven't seen that yet. There's been a little bit of a fear factor waiting to see if that would slow deal making down. It hasn't happened yet. Um, Pfizer and arena were able to pull and refile and get their antitrust through, you know, still very quickly within three months. And, and so uh, Sophie Nova and, uh, uh, Sanofi and, and Provention, you know, did a file and repull and, and and then closed their deal promptly just like last week. So I think it was like 36 days from being announced. So we haven't seen any regulatory headwinds, but I do want to plant that seed that that's out there potentially. And particularly if you're talking about mega deals, like I, that would even be more in my sort of field of vision as a worry, as an anxiety. But I'm not saying we've seen any headwind yet, but there's been a lot of talk on the regulatory side about slowing things down. And more than slowing it down, being kind of outright hostile to M&A as a model. Well, what about, you know, what about Illumina and Grail? Well, how, how do yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, that's even yeah. more interesting, right? I mean, it's not directly in pharma, but it's still, mm-hmm. you know, a yeah, life yeah, sciences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the regulatory environment's different. So yeah. um, I don't want to overplay that because it sounds self-serving as a lawyer here, but I mean, it's it's something to keep an eye on. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't point anyone who's interested in the FTC side of this to uh, my colleague, Brenda Sandberg's. April 29th article in our sister publication, The Pink Sheet, where she looks at large pharma M&As since 2019 and how they're playing out in terms of the FTC review and any divestitures that have been required or processes that are ongoing. It's it's a really interesting article with a really good chart at the end. So I highly recommend that to anyone who's listening today. And I thank everyone for listening today. And Matt and Mike, I thank you both again. And uh, 
I look forward to hopefully doing this again sometime soon. Uh, this has been the Script M&A podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks for having us. Thank you.